Shalom, Reverend John Ferret, and welcome to the continuing Bible study series that's called The Gospel According to Moses on the Book of Genesis. We're in Lesson 81 right now, and we're in Genesis 35. We're getting closer and closer to those events of the story of Joseph. Before we get there, we've got some amazing things to take a look at. So in Genesis 34 and 35, we're talking about the fact that Jacob and his family, this is their first stop as they come to this ancient city of Shechem, their first stop in Canaan, as it's pronounced. And behind me, you can see a picture of the ancient walls of some ancient city. Maybe that's what Shechem looked like in Jacob's day when he and his family first came here. Just as an aside, I wanted to let you know that we at Light of Menorah, we have done a number of short Bible study videos that are called Five Small Stones. And I wanted to bring this up because there are a number of those short videos, they're only five minutes long, that are going to add to the study of this geographical location of Shechem. So to access them, it's really easy. Go to the website, lightofmenorah.org, and in the right-hand side on the top of the page, you're going to see other resources. Click on that. And then you'll see podcast playlists. Click on that. And when you do, there will be a new window opened below where you clicked. And all you have to do is scroll down with your mouse, and you're going to see the list of all the podcasts and all the vidcast videos that I have done. The one that you'll be looking for is Five Small Stones. So when you scroll down and click on those words, Five Small Stones, you'll be able to see the entire playlist of those five-minute videos, five-minute Bible study videos. And the ones on Shechem, the ones that are emphasizing biblical geography, are numbers 11 through 14. Let me double-check that. Yes, numbers, episodes 11 through 14. And as I mentioned to you, these will only add to our current study on Shechem. Now, the first event that we really talked about in the previous lesson was about Jacob's only daughter, Dina, and the terrible events that happened at Shechem, where she was kidnapped by the son of the king of Shechem and raped. And Bible scholars asked themselves the question, why this story? It just doesn't seem to fit Jacob's coming out of Haran, escaping from Laban, his mother's brother, and now coming here to the promised land. It just doesn't seem to fit, but the story's there. So Jewish scholars and Christian scholars are wondering why. Now, Dina is least in her family. This is what it was like in those days. The boys of the family were more important rather than the daughter. So this is, first of all, unique. 
then all of a sudden we have a story just about Dina. But what we learn about God's Torah, about his instruction, is he is the one that wants this story told. He doesn't forget the least in Jacob's family. He doesn't forget the forgotten ones. It's almost as if the Torah is an ancient book dated to thousands of years ago, which is the first women's lib liberation book due to the fact that it really emphasizes women. Just for an example, the first woman who actually met the angel of the Lord is Hagar, Egyptian servant girl. She was pagan, Sarah's servant girl, Hagar. A pagan Egyptian servant girl is the first one that actually has an encounter and actually sees the angel of the Lord, which is a manifestation of God himself. This is amazing. And here we have the story of Dina. Now, this reminds us of the Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well. What's fascinating about that is, one, the Samaritan woman, and you'll see this in the study, is probably considered least in her town and among her Samaritan people. Number two, Jesus met the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. Jacob's well which Jacob probably dug, and it was here at Shechem. Now, Shechem, by that time, was in ruins. It was a village that had actually sprung up, probably close to or within the ancient walls, or what was left of the ancient walls of Shechem, which was called Sikar. This is just amazing. She was leased in her village and among her own people. So this is fascinating. Here we have a connection of the Torah all the way to Jesus. Of two women, Dina, and the Samaritan woman. We don't know her name. Two people who were least in their society. And both are at the same place. Very interesting. Very interesting in terms of that event. Now, the second event that we're going to take a look at comes down to Genesis 35, verses 1 through 5. Now, in the lesson, we'll be reading that. And it's the first time in the Torah where God, actually going through Jacob, basically says, Put away the foreign gods among you, the pagan gods among you. Now, the Hebrew word is sur, and its Strong's number is H5493. And so God is saying to put away the foreign gods among you. Now, Dr. John Kareed, in his Torah commentary on Genesis, and he is a brilliant Theologian, he is a brilliant Egyptologist, archaeologist, a very credible scholar, and he has written a commentary on the Torah. Let's take a look at his, his comments as it's related to this event. So Jacob, 
keeps his word and he makes all who are with him stop using literally the gods uh, of foreignness. In other words, the pagan gods. These deities may include ones brought by the people from Haran, as well as some brought by by the uh, by the captured uh, Shechemites. They may also include the teraphim that Rachel had stolen from her father. Now, I think this is likely only from the words in Hebrew that are in Genesis 35, 1 through 5, and that is it's the entire family. It's Jacob, Jacob's entire household, which includes Rachel, not excludes her, and there's no mention that Rachel is excluded. So not only do the people hand over the gods to Jacob, but they give them their earrings as well, which is a very interesting comment. Dr. Kareed goes on to say that no doubt these are amulets bearing images of foreign gods. Such things are well known in the ancient Near East. It was believed that jewelry in that form had magical deterrent power. So Jacob then takes all of these idolatrous objects and buries them beneath the oak tree near Shechem. This is the famous landmark where God appeared to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 6. And the patriarch responded by erecting an altar there. In the earlier passage, it is called the Oak of Moray. It appears to have been a venerated spot. Very venerated because this repeats itself again. Joshua is about to come. Well, <laughs> And a number of years later, with the entire nation of Israel, after they have come out of Egypt and are now conquering the land, they come here at Shechem and at the Oak of Moray. They also, they also recommit to the covenant where we hear Joshua's famous words, as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. So God, in his Torah, which is instruction, not law, we read about Jacob, obviously under the influence of God himself, telling his entire household and Rachel to put away the foreign gods. Dennis Prager, in his Torah study that he did for 25 years, from Genesis 1-1 all the way through Deuteronomy, his audio series, it's an amazing series. And he did it not only for Jews practicing Judaism, but also for Jews and Gentiles who work are Christians, Messianic Jews. So Dennis Prager here in this lesson, he's going to offer a number of reasons to say what's wrong with paganism. So, indeed, are you ready? for a very fascinating study as we go into Genesis 35 and even take a look at Genesis 36 as well. So ready? Come, let's go. The early church from the ascension of Jesus to 100 AD, they changed the world with the Old Testament. Amazing. And then my wife, the last time we were here, I shared with you that she had a thought. And it was really cool. I can't remember what it was. Okay, I can go back in my notes. I've got it there. Someplace buried back here. And it was really awesome. I had to share it with you. So she brought up another one. 
And again, she gets these thoughts on the way home or she gets them now and she won't tell them to you now. Okay, she'll tell me in the truck on the way home and then I've got to try to remember it for next week. And seriously, I, went, I wrote it down right away. She said, isn't this interesting? Because at Shechem, you have Dina, yes? And at Shechem, you have the Samaritan woman. Dina is least, she's unimportant. So is the Samaritan woman. At least this is an assumption we make. Why? She should have come out to get water with all the other women. She was alone. This possibly means she was shunned and she was isolated from having companionship among the other women who were part of the village of Sikar. That's an assumption. We can't prove it. But she's all alone. Women don't go out alone to the well. Fascinating. Dina's disgraced, and she is has been disgraced to the entire family. And what's fascinating for us is the Samaritans were considered the lowest of the low from the Jewish perspective. The Jews hated the Samaritans more than they hated Jesus. And the Samaritans hated the Jews more than they hated Jesus, but not many of them knew Jesus, except the Samaritan woman. Fascinating. Stories of two women, both in a very low position, and both at Shechem. Now, one Sikar, one Shechem. Yes. Isn't that something? She's the first one. She's a Samaritan. And so what the, the statement that just was made here is, and Jesus was told her, this non-Jewish woman, hated by the Jews, that he was the Messiah. He didn't tell it to a Jew. He told it to a Samaritan. Maybe we would say Dina was restored maybe somewhat because of the brothers coming. Well, what they did to the guys at Shechem. Nah. <laughs> there's, not, no saving grace for that. there's no saving grace for that. Even the rabbis say that. But the thing is, is that they went to bat for Dina. Uh, but indeed, she was disgraced. But Samar I mean, the Samaritan woman that you would say, she was saved. So that is, that is amazing. But again, that's the thought. So Robin, we had... Uh, Two other of your sisters and Lord added to uh, what you did. Okay, so anyway, we come to Genesis 35, verses 1 through 5, as we're cruising along here. Boy, 35 chapters done. Well, we're just getting to 35, though we used 35 before. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Genesis 35, 1 through 5, And God said to Yaakov, Arise, go to Bethel, and dwell there, and make there an altar to God, who appeared to thee when thou didst flee from the face of Esau, thy brother, or Esau. Then Yaakov said to his household, and to all that were with him, Put away thy strange gods that are among you, and make yourselves clean, and change your garments, and let us arise, and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar to God, who answers me in the day of my distress, and was for me in the way, at which I went. And they gave the whole household, Yaakov, all the strange gods which were in their hand, and all their earrings which were in their ears, and Yaakov hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon them. Actually, the awe of God, not the terror. Oh, well, the terror of God was upon all the cities. Yes, that terror, because 
what the boys did uh, that were around them and they did not pursue after the sons of Yaakov. Now, I'm just going to stop there because there were things I wanted to do in chapter 35. And so I'm listening to Dennis Prager and I'm learning from him. And he said, well, we're on 35 and 36. And he said, I don't have a lot to say on these two chapters because there's not a lot here. And he said, um, except for one thing. So now normally his lessons are close to an hour and a half long. And then he brought up these verses. Now in these verses that we just read, remember, this: the Torah implies here that Rachel is off the hook because Jacob talked to his entire family. That's what it says. All of them. It doesn't say, and Jacob talked to his entire family, except Rachel. And he said, give me all your strange gods. Okay? That means others in his family had the strange gods. Okay? Get them all. And they, except Rachel, doesn't say that. It says they, meaning all the household, gave Jacob the foreign gods to actually bury them at the oak at Shechem. And as my dear friend Mike said a couple of weeks ago, she repented. And we can maybe use that word. She turned. She obeyed her husband and so on. And so therefore, we would say when Rachel dies of childbirth, she was not executed by God. That, that makes no sense. Now, you'd have to go back on the tape or maybe in no notes to go back there to go through the rationale and the argument that I presented. There's no way that she was cursed by God. She died in childbirth. And as I've mentioned to you, childbirth is the way most women died in the ancient Near East. That's just natural. That's not a curse. That just happens. So it's not surprising, okay, that she died in childbirth. Big deal. Okay, it's sad, all that type of stuff, but that's how women died. That was their number one uh, means of death. But what's interesting is Dennis Prager said this, and it is really true. This is the first time in the Torah, the first time when Genesis 35 where there is a statement where the Torah says, destroy the pagan gods. Now, it's not God saying it. It's Jacob, but it's the Torah, God's instruction. So here's the instruction. Get rid of them. We're going to see this over and over again. Torah, it, its major concern is getting rid of gods. These foreign pagan gods over and over and over again. When we get to Exodus, the very words of God, I'm coming against all the gods of Egypt. Do you understand that when you study it, God loved the Egyptians? He loved them. He didn't like what they did to the boys of the Hebrew women. But he wasn't against, he wasn't against Pharaoh. He loved Pharaoh. Not as a god. That was the problem. And that was the issue there. But he, as God says, I am against all the gods of Egypt. And here we go with pagan gods again. So destroy the pagan gods. And so here's the interesting question. What's wrong with paganism? Come on. Because you got this. What's wrong with it? So Prager shared six reasons why or what's wrong with paganism. And I'm going to add the seventh. So I've got one of my own in here. The first one is there is a Christian author. I can't remember his name right now. I thought I had it written down. Um, do I have it written down anywhere? No, I don't, but that's all right. 
There's a uh, Christian author. He is a Bible. His, uh, he is a, actually a historian, and he is the one that gives credit to the Jewish people. He gives credit to the Torah. Okay, and he said the Torah, that ancient book from 1400 BC, is the only book in all history that came against the pagan idea of of the cyclical nature of a worldview. All pagan cultures were cyclical. In other words, everything repeats. In Egypt, if you study Egypt, they weren't going anywhere. There was no purpose except the Nile. What's the Nile? Life. What happens to the Nile? It floods, it recedes, you plant. Guess what? It floods, it recedes, you plant, you're in and you're out. What's the major goal, the only major goal of Pharaoh? What's his only job in Egypt? One and only thing, to progress the culture? No, to keep away chaos and keep order. That's it. So the Nile will flood, recede, they can plant, and everything is cyclical. Reincarnation. The highest God of all is the God of order. And this is, yeah, and we're going to see through all of this, right? through. Thank you, Mike. The highest God of all is the God of order. Reincarnation. Okay, study that. One keeps on returning again and again and again. So first you come back as a mouse, and then you come back as a better mouse. I'm not sure. Everything else is the same, but you come back differently. Okay, I don't know where you end in reincarnation because I've never studied that. The Canaanites had similar feasts. When we talk about Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Shavuot, all that, the Canaanites had similar feasts. Very similar. But they were cyclical in nature. But the Torah is talking about progress. Torah is talking about the fact that it's not cyclical, it's linear. But the thing is, it is cyclical and linear. Because when we study the spring feast in not just a few more weeks here at River of Life, you're going to see that it's cyclical. Every year you do Passover. Every year, every year, every year. All right? But you're progressing. Look at Shechem. Abraham? Progress. Jacob? Progress. Joshua? Progress. Jesus. And what did Jesus say? The night before he died. Don't worry. I'm going away to build a place for you. And I'm going to come again for you to take you to myself. There's, there's a purpose. Something's going to... It's linear. <clears throat> it hasn't happened yet. So it carries all the way through. The purpose is still to come. Okay, that's number one. Number two is in paganism, what you have is all the pagan gods are made up in men's minds. Okay? Uh, Zeus is a man. Got a good physique for a guy that looks like about 100 million years old. Okay? Take a look at the pictures of Zeus. Some of them are pornographic, but the thing is he's got this all white hair. He's got a great body, all that type of stuff. But he's the old man of the mountain. But he's a man. Amun-Ra. The head god in the 18th dynasty is a ram, or pictured as a ram, or the sun, okay? Anubis, the jackal, okay? So you can see him when you take a look at Anubis, the Egyptian god, he's got the head of a jackal. Neptune, okay, you've seen him, the god of the sea. Diana, the moon goddess. Hathor, cow, cow goddess. All made in man's image. But for us, it's interesting. We go back to Genesis chapter 1, and Mike, you just said, the highest God, the biggest God, the only God, is the God of order. And what happens in Genesis chapter 1, 
it comes against Egypt directly because their gods were created out of chaos and they tried to establish order and they started saying the moon is a god, the water is a god, the dust is a god, everything's gods, okay? Alligators are gods, cats are gods. But our God, okay, says in the beginning he created the heavens and the earth. And the next verse says, and there was chaos. So our God creates chaos, their gods come out of chaos. Who's the bigger God? That's the message, okay? But here's chaos. What does God do to the chaos? He establishes order, beautiful order. And then he makes woman. And what is he, because he said, hey, this is really good. This is really good. This is really good. This is really good. Then he creates woman, okay? And he said, this is really very good. Okay, so ladies, that you were the last part of the creation and you were very, very, very good. Do you understand this book is a women's lip book? Okay, in the ancient Near East, okay? Another women probably would disagree with that today, but that's their problem. Okay, but we have invisible forces. God's invisible. He's supernatural. He's above nature. He's not the moon. He's not a river. He's not an alligator. Okay, we don't even see him. Jesus is a personification, a manifestation of him. That, that, that's amazing. So all of a sudden, we're able to start thinking abstractly. What's wrong with paganism? It doesn't go anywhere. You can't think abstractly. You can't think of abstract ideas. But with a God who's beyond nature and you're trying to grasp who he is and trying to grasp the concepts that he's teaching, that's abstract thought. Their gods, the gods of the Egyptians, and really any pagan culture, their gods were pieces of nature. Okay, what's wrong with pagans? Magic. Magic. Okay, God comes against magic big time. Why? Magic is a means for man or woman, depending who there are, to do spells and rituals and sacrifice to control the world. You understand that a bunch of witches got together and they cast spells on our president? Have you ever heard that? Men and women, okay, pagans, decided to get together and they were going to do their rituals and seances and words, whatever they have, so that they can to come against the president, destroy him, or whatever they wanted to do, okay? This is man saying, I can control these forces, now, the pagan gods themselves were very capricious. There's a $10 word for you. Capricious means they change. They can do whatever, whatever they want. Okay? Willingly. All right? And you can't control it unless you do it through, in Egypt, magic. Magic was part of their religion. I didn't say all magic, but magic was a big portion of the Egyptian religion. And in magic, they were able to say, may the gods help us control and influence and so on. But our God, the only God, the one God, the only, and man is not God. This is what he's coming against. Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord and I do not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever as we read in Hebrew 13.8. By the way, this is a, something very interesting. So this is a, a little of an aside. One of the major questions that rabbis have is in Exodus 34, 3. In Exodus 3, you can write this down and check it. Right before they start building the tabernacle, okay, they got everything together. They got the gold and the silver and everything. They're ready to build it. And what does God say? Okay, guys, you ready? Yeah. Okay, let's talk about the Sabbath. What? 
Let's talk about the Sabbath. Before we start doing any work, let's talk about the Sabbath. It's fascinating. But in that verse, in 34.3, and it says, you will not make a fire on the Sabbath. No fire, which means no cooking. And the question is, why no fire? When you create fire, when you make a fire, when you light a match, okay, when you light a lighter, you're making something out of nothing in a sense. You think about it for a minute. Making a fire is like making something out of nothing. You got a match. You've got the match cover. Do you see anything that particles or anything that's going to help you all of a sudden see the fire, but all of a sudden you do this? Certain reactions, poof, you created fire out of nothing. The matchbook didn't turn into the fire. The match or, or the matchstick is not the fire. This fire happened. It's not part of the matchbook. You created something out of nothing. What did God just do before he created the Sabbath? He created everything out of nothing. So on the Sabbath, you will not create something out of nothing. You are not God. Wow. When that was brought up to me, amazing. This is coming against magic. It's coming against the entire pagan culture. Because you have to ask yourself the question, why does God say don't have a fire on the Sabbath? doesn't make any sense. But now all of a sudden, God says, you are not God. I am the one who makes everything out of nothing by my own spoken word. And making a fire is very similar to making something out of nothing. In other words, you're not God. I thought that was really cool. Now, another thing with regards to paganism, you got many gods. So if you have a certain religion where you do not have the God of the Bible, okay, if you do not have the God of the Bible, that God will have different, you would agree that if there's a God, an, a religion, okay, and their God is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but a different God, wouldn't you agree they would have different principles and rules and guidelines and things to do? Would you agree? Okay, that's called Islam, okay? Now let's take two gods. So now you got two gods in the same religion. Now you got two moralities. Get three gods, three moralities. Who are you going to believe? If you have no gods, you have no morality. And you can do whatever you darn well please. You see where it leads? The Egyptians had gods. There were the gods of evil and the gods of good. Gods. Gods that they did sacrifices to. Gods of evil and gods of righteousness. So once you get into paganism, all of a sudden you have multiple moralities. Deuteronomy 6.4. Jesus said it's the greatest commandment. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Let me say that again in Hebrew. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, and you say the Lord is one. It doesn't say that. Because 
Christians will say that one, see, therefore, three and one. That's the Trinity. Sorry, the Hebrew word there is echad, not yachad. Yachad would mean three and one, unified. We're one body of group of people tonight, one body, all right? But we have multiple people, we're yachad. We're a diverse group, but we're one tonight, okay? The word echad, okay, basically means this, no other, the one and only, the unique one. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the one and only God, the unique one. There ain't no other guys. There's only one way. John 14, Jesus says this the night before he dies. I am the way and the truth and the life. Yes? No one, no one is Jesus God. Okay, and it just said there is only one God. There's no other unique, okay, one, the one and only God. And Jesus says, I am the only way. Why, why are we not, uh, not surprised? By the way, Jesus says he's the way, the only way. No one comes to the Father but through him. The Keruvim, you call them cherubs. The Keruvim were guarding something. In the end of Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve had to leave. And God put two Keruvim guarding the... Nope. Nope. The way. The way. What does Jesus say? I am the way. Where were we going? We're going back to the garden. Paradise. Some people call it heaven. We're going back to the Father. He's the way. Amazing stuff. Now, when you think about that, there's only one way back to the tree of paradise. Only one. The Caravion are guarding it. Jesus says, I'm the way. No one gets to the Father but through me. And what does Deuteronomy 6, 4 say? There is only one God, no other, unique, one and only. It's very fascinating when you actually start getting in discussions with people and say, oh, no, there's many ways to God. See, if you use the New Testament, you have no basis. Because you say, well, Jesus has just said that. No, he didn't. It's Torah-based. It's the entire Bible. One God, one Lord, one Savior, Echad, not yachad. And once you understand the Hebrew word echad in there, the one and only God, there ain't no other, the unique one. He is all alone. Don't feel sorry for him. Okay? He likes being alone, the only one, because there is only one. Ah, that's ah, good stuff. So Jesus is not teaching anything new. Well, he sort of is. Okay? Because all of a sudden we see God, and he's the only way. I know there's an awful lot of Jewish people who do not believe as we do, and Jesus was Jewish and so on, but uh, maybe the more we learn Torah, the more we'll be able to talk to Jewish people and help them understand where we're coming from. Who knows? Okay, with paganism, there's no purpose. None whatsoever. There's no goal. The universe is chaos, okay? There's evil on one side and there's order on the other. And what they're trying to do is present uh, or trying to prevent the chaos. This was happening in Egypt all the time. But our God, what does he do? <laughs> he creates disorder. I mean, it starts disorder right away. Okay. And what does he do? Purpose. Purpose. What's he after? 
us. And then as he say, you have a job to do. This is not ending. Go into all the earth, multiply, and fill the world with my image. We're the image of God, yes? And that's what he says, fill it. So chaos and evil, yes, this is what God created. He brings on order and chaos, yes. The God of Judaism, the God of Christianity is over both. And we go back to Shechem again. This is why I, th I just sit back and I marvel, especially when I'm teaching this stuff, I, I started with Shechem, and this example is coming back and back again. Okay, look at the order. Abraham, Jacob, Joshua, Jesus, purpose. Yes? There is a purpose. And then Yeshua says, guess what? I'm coming back because I'm going to build a place for you, and I'll come back for you. The other aspect is paganism. There's no such thing as holiness in paganism. I mean, holiness and being separate and living righteously. Um, they act horribly. Look what they did to Dina. Oh my, I mean, they just raped her. Abraham and Sarah in Egypt, remember that thing, what they were going to happen? You'll talk about in Jeremiah where God comes against uh, the Hebrews and uh, others, where they were sacrificing their children to Molech. Sacrificing their children. In Jesus' day, there was a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's in northern Israel, not far from the ancient city of Dan. And there, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's about 100 AD when they were doing this. I'm not sure if they did it in Jesus' day, but part of their worship services that they had was they had sex with goats because this was the place where they worshiped Pan. And Pan was half man, half goat. That's where they worshiped there. And they actually have, <laughs> this is really cool. I just love, when I take people there, I take them to this one place, okay, which is the place where they stored the pen or the corral of the holy goats. Well, we got a couple of laughs over there. I mean, that's what it says, the holy, anyway. So, by the way, in Jesus' day, you're going to find this fascinating, especially with some of the things that we have just been going through. In Roman society, in Jesus' day and Paul's day, infanticide was legal. There were three ways you could kill your children, and this was legal. So if you were a dad, if you are a mom, and all of a sudden you got ticked at your son, okay, when he was, because he dirtied his diapers, okay, or whatever, you can go out and kill him. Infanticide. Basically, if children, if you don't want the child, you can get rid of it. Abortion, drowning, or exposure. Those were the three legal ways. Aristotle writes about this. So does Plato. Plato says women are worthless. Plato, in his own words. You can look at this. You're not going to learn this if you take a philosophy class. They will ignore Aristotle and Plato who are pagan to the core, except they infiltrated the Catholic Church and infiltrated with all their philosophy, and these guys are the biggest abortion proponents in the ancient world. Aristotle and Plato. Every city, probably, in Turkey in Paul's day, were Roman pagan cities. The women who didn't want their babies would take their babies outside the city wall and dump them by the wall. It was a baby dump. In Ephesus, it was one of the largest cities, and one of their main products that they developed was slavery. And it's known that these slave guys would go out to the baby dump to select babies, male and female, that looked like they would be profitable in their business as they would raise them. They would adopt them, okay, 
adopt them, if you, that's what you want to call, call it, so that they would be their male and female slaves in the future that they could sell them. Paul talks about the adoption as sons. Do you understand that? Did you ever think about what cities he actually wrote to? Rome, Ephesus, and probably one of the cities in Galatia. All pagan, all Roman, every place where infanticide was legal. And we in the United States have gone back. We really need to understand we really need to understand how to live in a culture today because those people change the world with the purpose and being with God and so on and ours is going the opposite direction. It's like this. They went up, we're going down. I don't know. God of the Bible outlawed murder, no adultery, choose life. This day, I give you a choice. Death or life, choose life. How many times you read in Proverbs or the Psalms, protect the innocent, the widows and the orphans, the innocent, the too weak, protect Dina. The last one I'm going to do today is my seventh one, and I'll do this just in a couple of minutes. This is mine. Those six were Dennis Prager, so I give him all the credit, and I've added a few pieces to there. What's wrong with paganism? Paganism basically says that justice comes from man. Justice, our legal system, everything comes from man, not from God. Pharaoh, he has to do everything he can to make sure to preserve order and to stop chaos. So there's chances that the entire economy would be able to prosper and so on. And even justice was related to that. In Rome, the emperor... He's God in the flesh. Augustus said he was God. Tiberius said he was God. Caligula said he was God. They all said they were God. Okay? Julius Caesar was kind of the first one. The Roman emperor was called the one who had the right of the sword. Ius gladi. Okay? Ius gladi, the justice of the sword. In other words, it was up to the emperor to say who will live and who will die. He was able to give this power, this right, to his governors, like Pilate. So why did the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate? Okay, Because Pilate took away capital punishment. Thank you. He took away capital punishment from the Jews. Capital punishment among the Jews is burning, hanging, or stoning. I think that's, I may be wrong, but stoning for sure. They took that all away. So the only way for a short period of time in the history of Israel for a very short period of time, it's like 20 years, the only form of capital punishment was crucifixion. Isn't that interesting? One point in history, and Pilate took it away. So they had to come to Pilate because they want Jesus executed. Now, if Pilate did not take away that form or, or capital punishment from the Jews, they could have stoned him. But he had to be crucified. So we needed a piece of history, purpose, control, God does this. So Pilate had the right of the sword. Eus Gladi. Now, it just so happens when you go to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, I'm just going to read one statement. This is the beginning of the letter to Pergamum. And it says this, And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. 
Pergamum was the city at that time where the governor of that province called Asia Minor lived. Pergamum, not Ephesus, not Smyrna. So if he's the governor, what does he have? He has the right of the sword, yes? It's the right of the sharp two-edged sword. In Greek, it's Romphia. When you read that in Greek in Revelation 2, what I just read, Jesus has the sharp two-edged Romphia. If you live in Pergamum, then you're not thinking, oh, Jesus has the word coming out of his mouth. No. Jesus is the one that has the power to say who will live and who will die because he is God and only God has the right to say who will live and who will die. No man could say, I will determine what justice is. If you live in Pergamum, that's what you understood, not what we understand. Let me go to Deuteronomy 32. Listen to this. Sharp two-edged sword. The right to say who is going to live and who is going to die. Deuteronomy 32, starting in verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he. This is God speaking. There is no God beside me. Ah, echad. I kill, well, it says, I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. In other words, I am the one who will say who will die and I will say who will live. Who is the only one who has the power of the sword? God. There is no one that can deliver out of my hand. Now listen to this. For I lift up my hand to heaven and I swear as as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. When Jesus says he's got the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, what did he just say? I'm God. Where does Jesus ever say that he's God? He just said it because it's related back to the Torah. Because remember, when Revelation was written, all they had was the Old Testament. It's the only reference that they had. So, you've got some work to do. You've got to go live in this life and bless God that he's got a purpose and a plan and it's being worked out. Amazing stuff. Wait till we get to the story. Not even story. I hate to even use the narrative of Joseph. Why is that there? That's another question you have to ask yourself. If you're a Hebrew coming out of Egypt, don't think about yourself now. Try to think about yourself as a Hebrew coming out of Egypt. And all of a sudden, you're going to read the story of Joseph. Why is it there? 15 chapters, ladies and gentlemen. 15. Why 15 for this guy? Interesting stuff. So we go forward to make disciples go forward in his word. Go forward to see Yeshua in one book, all the way from Genesis to the book of Revelation. So we come to the end of Lesson 81. And once again, as we put the Bible into its historical context, we see really the original intention of what God is trying to teach us. Jesus has the sword coming out of his mouth as we read in the book of Revelation, both in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And the traditional way 
the church has looked at this is this is the word of God. It isn't. The sword is connected to the very words of God in Deuteronomy, and it shows the power, and it shows the authority of Jesus over life and death. Just amazing. So the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth connects us to the Torah. The book of Revelation is based upon the Torah. And it shows that Jesus is God. Quite amazing. Now next, as we go into Lesson 82, we're going to focus in on the last few verses of Genesis 35. Matter of fact, I'll give you those verses right now. You may want to look them up and read them. Genesis 35, 27, 28, and 29. Now, I guarantee if you read them, you're going to say, what's extraordinary about that? We're going to study these three verses. And we're going to take a look and put them into their historical context. But we're also going to take a look and put them into their textual context in the Bible. <laughs> we're going to see some amazing conclusions and some amazing results. So now as we come to the end of our lesson, let's pray. Let's ask our high priest, our Jesus, to bless us. The one who has the sword coming out of his mouth. The sword that shows his power and his authority and the fact that Jesus is God. Let's ask him to bless us. And we'll remember in Luke 2450 that Jesus lifted up his hands to bless his 120 disciples before he ascended the Father. Just like the high priest daily lifts up his hands. It could very well be that Jesus blessed them with the ironic blessing. I've taken the ironic blessing and I've turned it into a prayer. I'd like to end our session with that blessing. That blessing that's based upon the high priestly blessing that God gave to Moses to Aaron to bless the people. Yevarekeinu Adonai Vishmarkenu, Yair Adonai Panava Alenu, Bekunakinu, Isa Adonai Panava Lenu, Viasem Lanu Shalom, Vishem Yeshua Adonenu, Amen. So together, let's say this in English. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us, and may he give us his shalom. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.